So speaking of lunch and using the comparison that I mentioned at the very beginning of my mom liking to cook but not knowing what to cook. So the second menu item given to me is the title, How Do We Bring Our Children and Other People Back to the Church? <laughs> Let me say this right up front. Whether or not a person decides to join the church, to stay in the church that he or she was raised in, is a personal choice that everyone, without exception, has to, at one time or another, make for themselves. It is a personal choice. I was baptized a Catholic as an infant, received sacraments, attended CCD and CYO, but I became a follower of Jesus in his Catholic Church at the age of 19. After toying with the idea of nothing during high school, not going to Mass, I mentioned earlier that my parents took us to church when I was young, before I had a driver's license. After that, well, not so much. We would go to church. There's no teenagers here, are there? <laughs> we would go to church stop in, pick up a bulletin, go to the Dairy Queen or the mall or whatever, figure, okay, mass is over, go home, throw the bulletin on the table, say the homily was boring. My parents had no clue. Until the night of my ordination when there was a family gathering, <laughs> aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, and one of my older sisters thought this would be really funny to share with everybody. <laughs> so after toying with the idea of nothing, and toying with the idea of Buddhism during my freshman year at the University of Nebraska, which I would have normally bowed my head, but since I was already there, <laughs> I chanted in a Buddhist temple. Everyone has to make their own choice. It may be the hope of Catholic parents that their children will decide to practice Catholic faith. But it is not a foregone conclusion, and few people that I spoke with during the break made mention of cases where this is not a foregone conclusion. Sometimes the choice to join a church or to stay in the one you were raised in is influenced by a whole host of other factors, most of which parents have no control over, or pastors, or teachers, or anybody else in a position of influence, friends, professor at a college, for example, 
a class that they might take, a book they might read, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, some experience that they had in life, you know, post-parental um, control, or even the human and therefore fallen dimension of the church. All of those can have an, an impact. Those, any one of those or a combination of those can lead children away or can lead people to stay. I'm not saying that there is nothing that my parents did that influenced me to become a Catholic. Obviously there was a foundation laid and you know there were you know, uh, support pillars put up, but it was far from a finished dwelling. Uninhabitable, I would say. But those factors, friends and professors and books and all that, experiences, they can move people to go away or they can move them to stay. I sometimes share about the summer of 1973, which I refer to as the perfect storm. Uh, a perfect storm, the combination of a, of a number of different things that created such a tumult, if you will, that when the storm was over, nothing that was there before remains, or it's, it's radically altered, you know, like a tornado or a typhoon or something of the sort. So the perfect storm. Uh, a co-worker at the officers club at Offutt Air Force Base. We were washing dishes together and at the end of the summer after watching me do all things that broke civil laws, divine laws, any kind of, you know, he, he said he was a Baptist ministry student. Never once was preachy the whole summer long. The last day, he handed me uh, a paperback, pocket-sized New Testament. He said, why don't you read this? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Second part of the storm. I went to Guatemala that summer for a month with men my age who were like me, believe it or not, at that time, I was contemplating being a married old missionary. I wasn't going to church, I was chanting in a Buddhist temple, and like I said, breaking all kinds of civil and divine laws, but I was also in regular correspondence with Mary Noel and signed up to go on this experience in Huehuetenango, Guatemala. And I spent that month with young men my age who were intentional, conscious, purposeful followers of Christ. That's something I'd never held scripture in my hand, let alone read it. I had really never met intentional Catholics before. Next part of the storm during that month, 
as you might imagine, you know, there was daily mass and, uh, and adoration of the Eucharist. And I, you know, it was a small group in a small chapel, and I could ask questions, what's this? Why do we do that? You know, it took this, that whole experience that, that I had grown up with to a new level. And then finally, um, you know, so I, I returned to the practice of faith and I spent, made a holy hour every day, went to daily mass, <clears throat> but I would never serve. You know, whether it was to serve at Mass, or to serve the poor, or to help out with some community, no, no, no. And, you know, I was too engrossed in myself, and, and I thought, well, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply to be a seminarian for the Diocese of Lincoln. And I went to the pastor, who was also the vocation director, you may have heard me say this on another occasion, but I told him, you know, and thought that he was going to fall down in a faint, you know, how wonderful this is. And he said, I would not take you if you were the last man on earth. <laughs> because no service, no other centered. So, my point in saying this is just as much as people and experiences and professors and whatever can influence people one way they can influence them another. The most that parents and pastors and teachers can do is to prepare children for the day when they make their personal decision. You know, could you have done more? I suppose. Could you have done things differently? Perhaps. But to do what you have the, the gifts or the, the know-how to do to prepare your children for that day, realizing that the work of conversion, you know, inspiring change of life, faith, all that, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not something that parents or pastors have control over. If I did, believe me, things would be a lot different in the Archdiocese of Dubuque. But I don't have that control, no more than, than parents do. And so, I'll mention two things. One, what parents and pastors should not do. You may disagree, but you're wrong. <laughs> Don't put the focus on rules rituals, and the rod of punishment. Rules, they play a part. You know, but like Jesus said, you know, with regard to the laws 
that touch upon the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know, rules are meant to serve the common good of the human community, not the other way around. Rituals, yes, they, they are important, they have a role to play. But as I said before, just going and bending the knee and doing all these things, and I have no idea what they mean, and that was all at a time when the Mass was in Latin, and I can still say the first response of the altar boy was Adeum que latificat juventutum meum. I have no idea what it means. <laughs> I left my heart. <laughs> or the rod of punishment. <clears throat> God rest my dad, shortly before he died. I don't know, somehow it came up in a conversation and he said, I go to Sunday Mass because I don't want to go to hell. And that's it. That's why he goes, why he would not miss, because I don't want to go to hell. I think if we put our focus on the rod of punishment and on rituals and rules, we should not be surprised, as parents and pastors, if children and young people choose otherwise. How attractive is that? Do this or you'll go to hell. You know, it's, it's like any law. Drive down Highway 20. Last night I was in Waterloo, we have every Friday, we have a gathering of our seminarians. So I'm coming back, driving back to Dubuque. One of our seminarians, zoom, <laughs> passes me by. Nine is fine. Somebody calculated it. The, the highway patrol will not stop you if you are just going nine miles over. It's, it's financially, it, it doesn't break even. They lose money on the deal. <laughs> so I can get away with it as long as I stay within nine miles over the speed limit. But that's not what the speed limit is about. The speed limit is set because it says, for the sake of the common good, for the safety of others on the road and yourself, maintain this limit. Yeah. We, if, if rules and the rod of punishment are the focus, you look to see how much can I do before I get punished or how much, how little do I have to do before I'm in trouble. Catholics come up to their pastors, how late can I be for Mass? And it still counts. <laughs> Anybody who asks that question of me, I would say to them, just stay home. Think about why you would go to Mass, you know, if there's any other motive. Also, I don't think it's convincing to children and young people coming from a parent or a pastor who are making life choices to insist on things like, well, I raised you to be a Catholic. 
or this is the church that Jesus started. We have the Eucharist. Those are all true. And, and in, in some ways, they are, um, you know, they should be compelling, but I don't think that they're terribly convincing for a life decision. You know, think about maybe asking somebody to marry you or, or responding to a proposal. Yeah, well, yeah. he breathes. No, you want something a little more, a little deeper. Third, parents and pastors and teachers have to find that sweet spot between too much or too little insistence. I firmly believe, like with regard to confirmation, and here in the Archdiocese we celebrate confirmation around the age 16. I, I think it is perfectly okay, even appropriate, for parents to insist that their children be confirmed. And they might say, but I don't want to be, you know. So, don't want to eat your vegetables, don't want to take a bath, don't want to go to school, but you're going to do it. Confirmation is the completion of baptism. It completes baptism. Most kids are baptized as infants. They didn't have much to say about the fact of whether or not they were baptized. This completes that. And they still go off and make a, a different, a contrary decision, but, but this isn't the time for a decision. You know, there's Matthew Kelly, if you're a catechist or a pastor or whatever, Matthew Kelly, uh, dynamic Catholic, and he's got this confirmation program called Decision Point, which he advertised as the most widely used confirmation preparation program in the country, because he offers it free of charge but I told him to his face, You're, this is not right. You, you, are, you are misleading lots of young people. This is not the decision point, confirmation. This isn't the time when they decide, oh, it could be, but not necessarily. Confirmation is not the decision point. If that were the case, there are some dioceses that celebrate confirmation with seven-year-olds. And some Catholics, Eastern Catholics, they celebrate confirmation at baptism. They give baptism, Eucharist, and confirmation all at the same time to an infant. Well, that's not a decision point. There is a sweet spot, as I say, between too much and too little insistence. I was at a parish not too long ago, subbing for a priest, 6.30 a.m. weekday mass. I don't think that God is even alive, or excuse me, awake. Alive, yes, but awake, no. But there were these two teenage boys who served. And so they were getting themselves ready, and so I said, so 
Did you guys volunteer to serve or were you voluntold? <laughs> and the oldest of the two, they were brothers, the oldest of the two said without, didn't even have to stop and think, voluntold. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I hope this does not backfire. You know that you're going to go, so the whole family was there. They're there every morning for 6.30 a.m. Mass and the boys are serving. It's a beautiful thing and I can't help but think and hope that it, it will, you know, impress something positive. But I also fear, you know, once you graduate from high school, you move away from home, that's it, you know, you can't volunteer me anymore and I ain't gonna volunteer. I hope that doesn't happen, they're nice people. I don't know where that sweet spot is. It's a challenge to find it, but it's an important challenge. So enough of what not to do, what to do. I, I believe that we have to make sure that our focus, the focus of our efforts, the focus of our teaching, the focus of our faith, that we have to make sure that it is on the person of Jesus, on his message, his promises, the way of life that he lays out for his followers. This may sound like, well, duh, but that wasn't the case when I was growing up. In fact, a couple of years ago, one of our priests came to me and said, what is with all this talk about Jesus and being disciples? I thought the church was the most important thing. Well, it is, but you know, the church is the body of Christ. How can you be a member of the body, the mystical body of Christ, if you don't know Christ or his teachings, his example and the way of life that he requires of his followers? Oh, last year or year before, I think I proposed an easy way to remember, you know, the the essentials of Jesus and his message and the essentials of what I called kingdom living, you know, to be uh, use fingers on one hand as reminders of one and fingers on the other as a reminder of the other. And if you weren't here, then you're just going to have to go without. Ha ha ha. Well, I'm sure it's somewhere. I don't know. Uh, or I can. I'll, I'll put it out some sometime in the in the witness on the website. Another what to do, to focus on the importance of the parish community as a support group for the practice of our faith, which I think only works, only happens if it is a warm and welcoming place, a place to form relationships where you learn acceptance, acceptance of others who are perhaps different, where we learn how to deal patiently 
with imperfections, one's own or those of others. Third, to insist upon the importance of the larger community. Where the rubber hits the road, again, like works of mercy, this is the criterion for authentic faith and for our judgment. What we do when we run into somebody who is hungry, thirsty, homeless, you know, a stranger in our midst, uh, we go on and on, all the needs that are reflected in the works of mercy, spiritual and corporal. To focus on connecting Sunday Mass with Monday at home and work and school and where life is lived. Uh, that, you know, when the deacon says, go, the Mass is ended. That's not the end of the practice of our faith until the next weekend. No, go, go, go. I, I, I love this story. I, I sometimes make up the particulars of it, saying, you know, oh, Father Ken did this in his parish. Or, but the, the story that's told of a priest who was trying to discourage folks from leaving early from Mass, you know, kind of like the, the drive-through. You, you get your food and then go. And so he had put these signs over all the exits. Judas was the first one to leave Mass early. <laughs> but it, it didn't have the effect that he was hoping for. You know, people would see that and go, huh, did not know that, you know, as they were walking out. <laughs> so he switched and put up a different sign. Over all the exits, you are now entering mission territory. Yeah. That, that's, what, that's what the dismissal means. You know, we, we have all kinds of, you know, probably Deacon Mark could tell us all the different um, variations on the dismissal. They're all supposed to be Lat, uh, translations from the Latin into English. But there's only one dismissal in Latin. And it is ite, misa est. I'm told, because I never studied Latin, but I'm told that ite is the imperative, the command form of the verb to go. Plural, second person plural. All y'all go. It's a command. Misa est. This, this is done. The mass. Now you are sent. connect Sunday worship with Monday work, home, school, whatever we do. This is where we practice the humility that we, were, that we learned and was formed in us at Mass. This is where we put into practice what we learn from the scriptures and the homily. This is where we practice our need for God and our need for others. to make the connection. These go a long way, I think, to attract people, to keep them in, or bring them back. 
If a child delays the decision, you know, to be a Catholic, let's say, or decides something else, and if that decision is personally upsetting to us, I think we have to ask ourselves, is it for me that I'm upset? Embarrassed? Um, you know, before family members or friends? Or taking it as a rejection of, of me as a parent or as a pastor? That pride is at work, sinful pride is at work, upset that this child does not follow what I said or, or my good example. Or even being afraid of being judged by others um, as a failure, as a parent or a pastor. If that's the case, if it's on account of me, then there's not much more to say than deal with it. In fact, I believe that a, a child's reconciliation with the church might depend upon the humility involved with acknowledging that this is more about me than it is about thee. Perhaps even repenting and changing heart. If a child's decision is upsetting because we are concerned as parents and pastors about that child's spiritual well-being, well, and I think that's where most people are. You know, I, all I can offer is an opinion, uh, the opinion of somebody who's never been a parent. I have been a teacher, I am a pastor, I do have concern for the spiritual well-being of all, but this is at least what, what I've come to. Do not nag at them or reject them. And by all means, pray for them with great fervor. My dad's oldest sister, my Aunt Mars, God rest her soul, uh, you know, she, she left home, raised a Catholic, you know, left home um, when she was done with school and um, it was the, uh, <clears throat> the war years and so she went to Seattle, I think it was, you know, Rosie the Riveter, she was working in one of those um, plants making planes that were used in the war effort and, and there she met a man fell in love, uh, and they married. Beautiful, right? But he was a Jehovah Witness. And so my aunt, Mars, became a Jehovah Witness at his insistence. And my grandpa said, she is dead to us. And she was never allowed home for any purpose whatsoever. My Aunt Lil, her youngest, next youngest sister, died of cancer. Not allowed. Uh, nor was any family member by him allowed to visit her or call her or anything of the sort. 
even Grandma. And so Grandma, when she heard that Mars was in town, she would leave the farm and tell Grandpa, well, I'm going to the Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> but she was sneaking into town to see her firstborn child. And I'm sure my grandpa, you know, he had the best of intentions. I don't want, you know, the other kids, the younger kids, to be influenced by Mars. Well, no, none of them became Jehovah's Witnesses. But most of them, and there were 14 of them, most of them never darkened the door of a Catholic church again. And if you were to ask them, they could answer by saying one word, Mars. Not because she became a Jehovah Witness, but because of how she was, you know, exiled or what have you. If it's out of concern for a child's spiritual well-being, then I think there's a powerful thing to give an attractive example of what it means to be a Catholic, which most of the time involves not opening our mouths, you know, not saying, you know, well, it says here, you know, in the Catechism, or it says here in the Bible, but just giving an attractive example of what it means to, um, to be a Catholic, to give adult answers to the adult questions that adult children often have and never had the occasion to find an answer as they were growing up. Um, people, especially young people, are very sensitive to hypocrisy. You know, of saying one thing, doing another, you know, a lack of integrity, you know, of, of, the, of a connection between what you profess to believe and how you live on Monday at home, school, or work. And also, people are very responsive to the example of, of joy and serenity, affirmation. A couple examples. Um, you know, I, uh, I'll share one of my, my Lenten practices was to, uh, to give affirmations. So I said, okay, I'm going to, once a day, I'm going to write a card to one of our priests. And I, it just as a, Father Ken probably got one, I don't know. Yeah, I think so, because I'm past G's already. <laughs> Uh, and each one starts the same way. This is just a note to greet you and to affirm you for your priestly life and ministry. And then the next, I especially appreciate, and then whatever it is, this about you or you or, you know, God bless you. No big deal. Uh, but sometimes, and I'm not... Don't think like you have to respond, Father Ken, so I'm not saying this for that purpose. But sometimes, they write back. Yesterday, I, I'm in the R's, and so I, 
I got an uh, a email back from Father Remy. Never met him. He was a military chaplain, lives in South Carolina, I think. <laughs> Big, long email, just, <sighs> Campbell, wow. You sure you were writing that to me? You know, and it was just overwhelmed. But I think that it's because people are starved for things like affirmation. There's a, a Catholic psychologist, very famous, Dr. Conrad Bars. Um, he developed this whole notion of deprivation neurosis, that people get neurotic if they are deprived of three essential things for human life. Affection, attention, and affirmation. That they become as neurotic as they might be otherwise if they're deprived of air, water, or food. You become obsessed. You, where am I going to get it? And you start to hoard it away. Then people need this as much as they need banana bread and coffee. <laughs> attention affection, affirmation. People respond to it. Our seminarians, I mentioned that we, we gather on Fridays, and the very first Friday I had asked them, now you just take a few minutes, just 10 minutes, to think back on the priests in your life and which one and why, you know, why did they have an effect on your asking the question and responding as far to go into the seminary. And so they thought, and then I said, not, you know, whether you want to mention names or not, fine, but talk amongst yourselves. And then when that was done, I said, now tell, you know, share some of those. And, and there were three main qualities of a priest, and, and actually one priest sitting in this room was one of those mentioned. I, where is he? Uh. <laughs> um, but there are three main qualities. The priest was happy, joyous, you know, and it's like attractive. I want some of that. The priest was serene or uh, comfortable in the skin of a priest. And the priest was affirming. Uh, and they, they did also mention Monsignor Blyke. Some of you may know Monsignor Blyke, who earned the nickname the Affirminator. <laughs> but but those, those are very powerful. Happiness, serenity, affirmation. If a child has let's say, not made a decision yet, or made a decision not to our liking, have hope. You know, as long as there's life's breath, there's hope. Um, that they could see your serenity, your joy, uh, hear your affirmations, and respond. Uh, you know, in that story that I told about my own upbringing and decision, People go, oh, thank you for sharing that. There's hope for my kid, you know. <laughs> Have hope and remember that God still loves. 
God cannot not love anyone, even that one that we spoke of. God cannot not love. God loves first, God loves most, God loves without reason. St. Catherine of Siena, one of her prayers, she would go to Holy Communion. She had a circle of followers that went with her wherever she went, and she'd come back from Holy Communion and, and, and would usually go into ecstasy. And while in ecstasy, she would utter prayers. And her, her followers, you know, gather around, would you know, try to write these things down as she uttered them. In one of those prayers, she, it's, it's almost like she's, she's asking God and also giving God's answers, but she asks the Father, why did you create us? You who know all things, and so you knew that we would offend you with sin, that we would rebel against your will and disobey. Why would you go and create knowing that? And the father's response is, yes, I knew. And had I fixed my eyes on that, I would not have created. But rather, I looked beyond it, and I fixed my eyes on what is beautiful about you. What is beautiful that is not changed by the fact of sin, no matter what the sin is. I fixed my eyes in what is beautiful about you, and I fell in love with the very idea of you, and so created you, and redeemed you, and sustained you, like one, her words, like one who is drunk with love, who is crazy with love for you. It isn't reasonable. It doesn't make sense. Well, you really shouldn't love that person. I know. I just can't help it. You know? I'm crazy in love with that person. It's without reason. That's the way God loves everyone. And, and I'll conclude with this, and judgment, which we all, right, we all have to stand before God, before the judgment seat of the divine majesty, and receive a recompense for how we lived our life in the body. But God's judgment, thankfully, God does not think the way we do, or judge according to our standards. God's ways are not our ways, and God does not judge without mercy. And God's mercy is prodigal. It's wasteful. You know the story of the prodigal son. I think that should be called the parable of the prodigal father. Those two sons, they were both dumber than a box of rocks, Neither of them got it right, and, and that's, I think, what Jesus was trying to communicate. Both of them approached the father 
not as children, not as sons, treat me as one of your hired hands, the, the prodigal son says. No, I can't, the father says. Or the elder son, I have slaved for you. You're not my slave, this, this is all yours. The father, though, who should have been really ticked at that younger son, and the older one for that matter, but instead scanned the horizon every day since his departure, watching for his return. And when he saw him on the horizon, he didn't stand back with his arms crossed, tapping his foot, waiting to hear, you know, the act of contrition and, you know, imposing a penance. The father saw him, and the story Jesus told us, the father runs to him, and not waiting to hear, because it really didn't matter how prodigal the mercy of God is, throws his arms around him, covers him with kisses, and says, bring out the finest robe, put rings on his fingers and bells on his toes so he can have music wherever he goes. Kill the fatted calf, he's alive! That is the father who judges and gives us our recompense. So there are no easy answers to this, uh, this menu item. How do we bring our children and other people back to church? If I would summarize it, I would say the most effective means is just that example of this is what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. Someone who forgives 70 times 7 times. Someone who gets down on his hands and feet to wash the feet of others. Someone who is you know, joyful in their faith. My dad, I, he's a believer, I'm sure he's in heaven. But he wasn't joyful in his faith. How can you be joyful when I'm doing this because I don't want to go to hell, you know? I don't like it, but here I am, you know? <laughs> To be joyful in our faith, to be comfortable with the skin that we receive in baptism, and to be affirming. So, I don't know if um, at this point, we have a few minutes, I think, if you have um, a question or a comment, and Father Ken would ha be happy to answer them. <laughs> no? Okay.